any entrepreneur that like starts a company and like you said earlier, when you have this mindset of you don't want anybody else to tell you what to do. You want to do your thing. Yep. That's the way that I'm wired. I want to do my thing. I want to create what I want to create. I want to have, I want to create all the rules. I don't want to listen to anybody. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. We're doing it the right way anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Snoring quite literally destroyed Alex Neist's marriage. So he went down the rabbit hole, finding different ways to improve his sleeping habits and his own mental health. He tried different pillows, mouth guards, positions, and every other gadget that you can think of until he realized the root problem, mouth breathing. Armed with this new information, Alex went to work developing a product that would literally shut his own mouth, improve his sleep quality, transform his health, and eventually actually help save his marriage. Today, we talk all about the meteoric growth of Alex and his company, Hostage Tape. Today, we talk about the meteoric growth of his company, Hostage Tape, the science behind mouth taping, the difficulties of entrepreneurship, and how he took his company from zero to 900,000 its first year, and then over 14 million its second year. There's honestly just so much gold in this episode that I wasn't even expecting to come across. So, Roll the tape. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Travis Makes Friends podcast. Today, I'm making friends with Hostage Tape founder, Alex Nice. Alex, what's up, dude? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks for thanks for showing up to my house an hour early. I, I um, was total jackass. <laughs> like, my phone, for some reason, didn't do the time change. So he's like, hey, I just make sure you come at like 1030 or not, like not too early. I show up an hour early and I'm like... And I felt like a, I felt <laughs> awful because I've had hey, kids too. As, I was going to say, as you're an understanding person, that's all I ask. So wife's out of town. So I had my brother-in-law watching the kids and then, you know, knock on the door. I was like, oh no, there's stuff everywhere. My I kids can only are, imagine like my kids are hanging out. My producer's using the studio. Like we can't go earlier. It's like, all right, I guess we're just, we're just going to hang out. But yeah, it's cool, dude. I, that's part of one of the reasons we do the, the interviews at the house. I was telling you, just Travis makes friends podcast. It's like, come on in, let's hang out. Let's awesome. chat. Well, listen, dude, Hostage Shape, super interesting brand, super interesting company, especially for me as a right. prolific mouth breather. Never been able to breathe super well through my nose. I use breathe right strips and different things like that throughout my life to try to sleep better and things. And then when I saw this, I was like, that seems like it's the opposite of helping you breathe better. But ultimately, right. it actually does help you breathe better. So we're definitely going to talk about this a little bit. But before we do, I always like to go back in time, put a little bit of context here. Let's go even, you know, Pre-adulthood, you know, 11, 12-year-old Alex Neist set the oh, scene man. for us. Where were, you know, in the okay. world, geographically, okay. gosh, when, house when, life, home life like? When I was 10 or 11, I was in farmland. We're talking Midwest farmland, Minnesota, southern Minnesota. We're talking cornfields. We're talking pig barns, all that stuff. So a lot of stuff right? to do. A lot of stuff to do, <laughs> right. In fact... What I ended up doing, it was right around that time where I discovered my first love, football. Mm. And I'll never forget it. So I was at a, a friend of mine's birthday party. 
and they had packs of Topps football cards that they gave everybody. I had the pack. I Which pulled was it out. Awesome. That's right. Sad. Oh yeah. I mean, I think if you're our age at all, you grew up doing baseball cards, football cards, just trading cards, right? Something. Yeah. And now it seems like those card stores, like they just don't exist anymore, like they did when we were kids. Mm -hmm. But so I got this pack, and I pulled out. I wasn't really into football at the time, but I pulled it out, and the last card was a Joe Montana card. Did you even realize what it was? I had no idea. Who, I didn't know who it was. But everybody around the table was like, oh, my God. Yeah. You got a Joe Montana card? Dude, he's the best quarterback in the league, man. Yeah. That is awesome. And so then I went, oh, something clicked. I can't explain it. That clicked. And from that moment on, I said, I'm going to be a quarterback. I'm going to be a football player. So me, when I go all in on something, I'm extremely passionate. So I bought everything I could, footballs. I started watching videos. I would buy videos of Joe Montana, like, you know, his history, all that. Mm -hmm. And there was this VHS tape I had of Joe Montana that I would watch over and over and over and over again. But I would go out and because I lived out in the countryside, right, and grew up in the middle of like farmland, my dad built this like big old net out in the pasture, okay? Because we grew up, we weren't farmers. My dad was a, a doctor, but we okay. lived out near farmland. We had pastures, we had horses and all that. Okay. So he built this net. So I would go out there and I would throw my football into the net for four, five, six hours a day, every single day as a kid. To this day, I can still go out into a park and throw a football by myself. And you can watch me and go, the hell is that guy doing <laughs> right because i'm just the out behavior there of an insane person i look like the character in napoleon dynamite i look like that guy <laughs> right uncle rico right. he's just like thrown to nobody so i'll go out into this Once park you make a bet i can throw a football over the mountains <laughs> hey man if i'd have been the starting quarterback we'd want state we don't want state we don't want state right but i still to this day it's one of my favorite like ways to just distress to just enjoy relax and just go out and do that like mm. That is fun for me rather than sitting there like watching a movie or something. Yeah. So you don't go out with a pile of footballs, just one football? Just one. Because here's the thing. What you do is you go out into a, you have a big enough space where I pretend like I'm playing the game. Yeah. So I'll go up and I'll like look around. I'll pretend like I've got a route in my head and I'll take a five step drop, three step drop and I'll throw the route. Yeah. And then I throw it and then I run after it. I don't run like full speed, but. I'll jog yeah, after you're it. You're not going to catch it. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe I can. Yeah. That would be impressive. That would be. So then I just go after it. I pick it up and then I throw it again. And then I go all the way down the field, turn around and I go back. Yeah. And there'll be people like in their houses and looking at me going, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> but the, so I grew up doing that. Yeah. Right. Throwing into the snet or throwing did you into have the siblings? yard. I did. So I, ha I had my older sister. She's the oldest. And then I had an older brother. Okay. Uh, so my brother were, we were two years apart. And my no, sister Nobody was, wanted to go run routes with you, huh? No, my brother was a musician, actually. Okay. He grew up a violinist. And then he went off and he went to Manhattan School of Music. And so he was really big into the wow. arts. So it's- Is that strange growing up in that area? Like, were there a lot of people doing that or was Not that, really. Yeah. Yeah, no. I think what was interesting about the dynamics of the family was my sister was- Kind of a combination of she was really smart. She was like the smartest girl in the school. Mm. So she went on, she became, you know, valedictorian. She went on to Stanford University, mm. all that. 
And then there was my brother who was the, so she was the smart one. Then my brother was the, the violinist. Yeah. Right. He was the drama. He was all of that. And then I was the athlete. So you had all three like different areas yeah. that we all excelled in and it was all different. And to right? be that close together in age too, like that's, yeah. that's very interesting, like family dynamic. Right. So was it kind of just, we don't, we just don't really hang out, but we don't have any problems with each other or was Ooh, it, was no, there a lot I mean, of fights or? I mean, my I mean, brother. Typically, obviously, you know, siblings fight, but I'm saying like. Well, what's funny is dynamics. I don't really remember <laughs> my sister that much. Okay. Like. There was enough of a gap that I remember my relationship with my brother more than I do my sister. Sure. She went off to college and all that stuff. But then my brother and I were much closer, but oh, we fought all the time. Yeah. We fought all the time. In fact, there's a funny story. We had horses growing up. Mm -hmm. So we had a horse barn and one of the chores that we always had to do was to clean out the horse shit yeah. in, the, in the pens. So we would go down and we would always get in fights about like, who had to do which stall because some of the stalls were filled. Some of them weren't so filled, but in Minnesota, when it gets really cold, guess what? The horse shit freezes and it gets really hard. Mm. So we were down in the, the barn one day and we were cleaning all of it out. And we had to know a fight about just something stupid, some something stupid young brothers getting fights about. And so I picked up a, a big old pile of frozen horse poop and I threw it at his face and I gave him a bloody nose. And then we were supposed to go to the science museum later that day and my mom yeah. canceled it <laughs> yeah. because we got into a horseshit fight and it just, it ruined horse the weekend. Fight. So yeah, well, those, all of a sudden those hours of throwing the football by herself came in handy <laughs> exactly. real quick. Maybe that's yeah. where I got it from is throwing a frozen piece of horseshit in my brother's face. I just couldn't even throw it back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so grew up in Minnesota, start playing football at a young age. Right. And you actually want to pursue this as a career path now. Well, you know, what's interesting. So my whole life, I was always the underdog. And so I was always the guy with the chip on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, the movie Rudy, right? Mm -hmm. Who doesn't love the movie Rudy? Like that was what I would watch to inspire myself because I always felt like I was the underdog. I wasn't quite taken seriously. Yeah. So I had to outwork everybody. Mm -hmm. So when I went into my varsity, you know, season, right? Getting on a varsity after my um, eighth, ninth grade year, the nobody thought I was going to be the guy. Nobody thought I was going to be the starting quarterback. Mm -hmm. They all thought it was going to be the other guy. Yeah. Right. There's always that other kid who's the popular kid. Yeah. So kind of more naturally talented or gifted or, or something. Or it was just like he was the funny guy or mm -hmm. the, the good looking guy or whatever it was, the popular sure, kid. Sure. So nobody thought it was going to be me. They thought it was going to be the other guy. And everybody laughed. They were like, You're not going to be the starting quarterback. It's going to be that guy. Come on. Yeah. So I'm like, screw that. No way. And so my DNA has always been I'm going to work my ass off. Yeah. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to outwork anybody. And so I did. And then I became the starting quarterback. And then the rest is history from there. I went on. And then as a, a senior, we were, you know, I'd only lost like two games my whole career. Went to state every year. And then we lost, right, that final game. But then it was, oh, you're not going to play college football. I'm like, screw that I am. I'm yeah. going to play college football. So then I went on. I didn't get a scholarship to where I wanted to go. So I walked on. I walked on at the University of Minnesota, okay. Division One school. Mm -hmm. Again, everybody's thinking, 
who are you? What do you think you're going to be? You're nobody. You know, I walked on there and then I didn't play. I was a backup, but then I ended up parlaying that into, I know I can play. Even though I didn't get to start there, yeah. I know I can still play. So then I ended up getting on an arena football team somehow, right? Convincing During a During college. No, it was after I graduated. Okay. Right? So after gotcha. my college career, gotcha. like, I wasn't the starter, Yeah. right? Usually if you're going to go play professional football, like you have to have been a starter in college. Sure. But I didn't start in college, but I knew I was good enough. I just didn't have the opportunity. I then went on and I convinced some coach that I was good enough, that he liked. There was something he saw. And I became the starter my rookie season, threw for 44 touchdowns, three interceptions. Wow. You know, we won the conference championship and then the rest was history. And then I played for the next like five, six years. Okay. And then I met my wife on one of my final seasons. In fact, funny story about that. What I'm most known for in arena football was I was the quarterback for the Spokane Shock in 2006. That was the inaugural season. And I met my wife, my one of my teammates was dating a girl. And she said, oh, I've got this girl that you're going to like. She's from North Dakota. So you'll love her because yeah. Minnesota boy. I'm like, sweet. Yeah. Like Midwestern girl. Like what are the chances I'm going to meet her being on the West Coast? Sure. So I meet her. She comes to the games. She's watching the games. And we were at a party later. And she said to me, so how come you only play half the time? Are you not very good? <laughs> and there is the record scratch. Like, yeah, yeah, like he's the quarterback of the team. And she's like, I don't get it. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I always tell that story. Like I told it when we got married. Yeah. You know, everybody and everybody always laughs. And she's like, what? That's hilarious. <laughs> she just didn't know football. She or? had no concept of, she just wasn't, she didn't follow sports yeah, growing yeah. up. She just, yeah. I, it's probably a good thing, right? Because you definitely want to meet somebody, a partner that, you like for you yes and you Th that it's not disillusioned right yeah, it's not yeah. a groupie you're somebody sure. that has that illusion of like they like you just because you're the star on the field like that's the last person you definitely right. want well, to be with when it goes away so do they right <laughs> yeah that's probably the, the good thing about it yeah. but it's always and, and what's funny now is now that we're back together because we actually went through part of my story is we actually went through divorce mm -hmm and separation. And now we got back together, which is part of why this company exists now. But now that we're back together and it's, you know, it's been almost 20 years now, she actually likes to go to football games. Oh, so we'll go to Vikings games now. And she actually likes it. And she's like, Hey, let's go to the Vikings game. So we'll go to yeah. the Vikings game and I'll drag my son. And what's weird is you'd think my son would want to go to the game. But he doesn't want to go to the game with me. My wife wants to go to the game with me instead. Does he play or something? So he did early on, and then he took a break. Yeah. He didn't really want to play. I don't know why, but that's okay. Yeah. He got into baseball. Okay. And he actually, he's become a really good baseball player as he's starting to grow into his body. Because he's now, he's 14. He's now as tall as I am. He wears the same size shoes I do. And it's crazy how wow. he turned from... You know, as big as your son was, this yeah, yeah. little kid. Yeah. And now he's my size. That's ridiculous. But he said to me, he said the other day, he goes, hey, dad. I'm like, what's up, bud? I think I want to play football. And I was like. Yeah. On the inside is like a, yes. Because 
like football is my first love. Right, right. And so it's everything that I am. It's my, it's so much of my identity. It's so sure. much. I owe every part of my life to football. Yeah. I wouldn't have met my wife. My kids wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. My business, none of it. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't started and, and been a football player the way that I was. And so I was like, holy shit, you want to play football? All right, sweet. What do you want to play? Yeah. And I think part of it happened because, so I coach his baseball team. And in the fall, we do, so we've got spring baseball and then we've got fall baseball. And when I coached his fall team, you know, football's starting and back in Minnesota. Everybody's watching the Vikings, all that stuff. So one of the fun ways that I would change practice up is we would do flag football sometimes. So I brought a football and, and I was all-time quarterback and we would play flag football. And he started playing, running routes, catching touchdowns, making interceptions he realized how good he was mm. and it clicked in his brain that, whoa, I'm actually pretty good at this. Yeah. yeah. If I put a little bit of work into this. I'm pretty good yeah, at this. Right, right. And so I'm like, I'm just like holding it all back, you know, <laughs> like, okay. Like, cause yeah. you know, if I'm too overly pushy totally. on him about it, then he's like, he's not going to want to do gonna back it. off. Yeah. Right. As the son does. <laughs> yeah. So, well, fortunately <laughs> uh, we're really lucky that, he, his name is Rex, he is very coachable, hmm. even for me, you know, because most of us men, when we grow up, a lot of times we hit that age, yeah, right? That teenager age where we don't want to listen to dad. We don't want to listen to what mom and dad have to say. Mm-hmm. We think they're crazy, but we'll listen to our coaches, sure, right? But if our dad is our coach, then it's almost like the worst, right? Because right? then you right. definitely don't want to listen to your coach. But he has this weird ability to he's actually coachable and he listens to me that's really good i think he gets that from his mom (laughs) i'm much more like bullheaded and arrogant in a way where i'm like nope i like it this is what i want to do i think i always thought i knew better than the coaches that was just the way i was wired but he doesn't think that way so i'm fortunate that he actually is very coachable that's by me fantastic so yeah i'm lucky yeah no kidding that could easily go the opposite direction. Well, my daughter. Quickly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my daughter is, my daughter is me. It's yeah, funny. Yeah. Like we joke in the family that my son inherited my wife's kind of demeanor. Yeah. yeah like yeah. her emotional intelligence and, and her kind of personality. Yeah. And then my, my daughter, she inherited me. Oh no. So now <laughs> it's like karma is all coming around. Yeah, exactly. And I get to deal with now me. Right. And it's like, here you go, Alex. Right. Good luck. Oh man. <laughs> well, that's going to be a lot of fun. It is. You know? <laughs> it is. She's entering that fun phase now. Oh, she's becoming a teenage girl. Wear makeup and looking pretty and, oh, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, well, just makes me want to savor the time that I have right now. My daughter just turned three. You met yeah. her downstairs putting on her Princess she's Peach adorable. costume. Adorable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, it, whenever I hang out with people that are like, oh, yeah, my daughter just turned 12. I have one of my buddies, his daughter's like 12 or 13, and she's going through the same thing. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and savor these like costume, Halloween yes. costume moments <laughs> for now because that sounds like a nightmare. Well, <laughs> it's like I was telling you before the show that my daughter, she's entered this stage where she doesn't want anything to do with me. Yeah. You know, nothing to do with me. Like I'm very, I'm very loving with my kids. Like mm-hmm. I'll come up to my son's 14 and I'll come up to him and I'll give him a big old hug and kiss on the cheek around the neck. Mm-hmm. And 
he gives it back to me. Yeah. Like, that's pretty crazy because he's 14. Sure. Like, will he let me do it in front of his friends? Probably not. Yeah. We'll see. But if I try to go up to my daughter and do it and show her affection, she'll run the other direction. Mm. So I, I think it's normal, you know? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I think and, it is. In fact, I, I heard, I think Dave Asprey talks about this interesting concept where as your kids get older, they get into their teenage years, most kids act like my daughter, where they don't want to listen to you. They don't want to be around you, but they'll listen to other adults. And there's actually some like evolutionary theory there that there's a reason for that. And the reason that they do it is that it's a way to push them out of the nest. So that they go out and they get other knowledge mm. from other sources yeah, to help yeah. make them better. Well, it truly, you know, takes a tribe yeah, to, to get a kid out of the house and to have them be really well-rounded. I think that's really necessary in a lot of ways. And one of the reasons actually that I think it's insanely valuable to think about the people you're spending your time with, because it's not just the people that you're spending your time with. It's the people that your kids are getting time with. Right. Um, and like having friends that are constantly pushing and, you know, being useful to the world around them, being productive and being objectively, you know, contributing members of society, <laughs> like having those types of friends around your kids is extremely helpful. Like when they're really little for sure, but coming in that teenage years got to be a huge difference versus like, well, you know, I got friends that are that way, but they're, they, you know, they live on the other side of the country and we live here and we're with these people and like, you know, don't follow uncle so-and-so's advice or don't listen to, you know, auntie so-and-so like you should do this. And then they're just going to go hang out with them and then learn right. from them. You know what I mean? So it's definitely one of those things that I've been thinking about more is like, man, who are the people that I want to be around that I want my kids to see that I want them to spend time with for them to look up and be like, Oh, you know, uncle so-and-so who's, you know, whatever they're an uncle, but they're just a friend of mine. It does this and this. That's really right. interesting. It's like, I want friends like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Who in my absence would instill similar values in my kids to the ones that I would want to see instilled in them. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like the, it's like what we hear, right? You're the average of the five people you yep. spend your time with. And so as I've went through this journey of, of like redefining who I am as, as my wife and I went through this divorce, mm -hmm. I, I became very conscious of that, right? Of who are you spending your time with and who should you be cutting out? And it relates to your kids too, right? And yeah. I actually credit my mother. It's funny, like when I was younger, my son's age, there were multiple times in my childhood that my mom made it very clear I love you, mom. She said, you can't hang out with him. Hmm. And at the time, I, you know, you don't understand it. You might right. be angry. I'm like, I don't get it. But looking back now, I get it. I understand why these people, yep. these boys that she didn't want me to hang out with, you look back, where are they now? They're nobodies. Mm -hmm. They're still, they're townies. They're living in the town, going nowhere, mm -hmm. making no money. Mm -hmm. They were failures. Yep. And she saw that and understood the importance of proximity. Yeah, the power of proximity. People, yeah. Right, yeah. all that, so. Yeah, both negative and positive proximity, you know? Like, right. nobody's immune to it is the problem. Like, you can't just go hang out with people that are like that and stay at the level that you are or get better. It's going to make you worse, you know? Or it's gonna get you out of their friend circles. And it's the same way with people that are like really high level. It's like, you will get better or you won't be able to hang out with them. 
You know, like right. both things will happen, you know, in, in both groups. You know what I mean? So you either will become that average or like they just won't want to hang out with you. Because after the fifth weekend in a row with like those guys that are just going to go out and drink every day or whatever, and you keep turning them down because you're working extra or you're reading a book or you're doing something that is moving you toward a goal or a vision that you have for your life, they're ultimately just going to give up and be like, ah, oh, well, Alex, he's just not fun anymore. Well, and you know what they do too, because I experienced this was <clears throat> when you do make those changes, you know, when you go through a life-changing type, you know, scenario, you get those people around you that they start criticizing you. Absolutely. You know? Because in many respects, they see what's going on and they don't want to lose the one that they know. They don't want to lose the person that they've come to yeah. know and become friends with because they know that you're changing. You're becoming somebody else. Change sucks. Yeah. And they're going to lose you. And most likely, you're probably not going to be friends anymore. It's even to a higher degree, I think, when it's people that you grew up with or people who have a very similar background to the one that you have. Because the more successful you become the more you're holding up a mirror to their own shortcomings. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for them to talk shit and say, oh, Alex has changed and he's just not the same guy and like he sold out or he loves money too much or whatever. Like they can throw all these accusations out at you because it's that's easier than it is to just like look in the mirror and be like, you were lazy for 20 years and right. you didn't go do anything. And now you're sitting like doing the same shit that you were doing when you were 23 at 43 and you have nothing going for you and you, your relationships in shambles and you are overweight and you're sick. And you know, there's just all these things that they don't want to face the reality of. I had control over that and I didn't do right. anything. And Alex came from the same background I came from and went and did all these other things. It's really difficult to reconcile. So it's just easier to talk shit and just start vilifying the other person, even though that other person could be completely correct in the decisions that they made. Well, I think a lot of that goes back to your parents, right? And again, I'm going to give more credit to my mom here. So I think something that's missing with a lot of people, and especially in this day and age, is parents who are actually instilling hope and optimism into their kids of what they could become. Mm. I don't think they're doing that enough. And I think if there's one thing that my mom taught me, so my mom and my dad taught me two different things. My dad showed us how to work hard, that you could do anything you wanted to do. You just had to work for it. He showed it. Mm -hmm. But then my mom actually, she verbalized it. She actually taught me. She told me, Alex, you can do anything you want to do. You just got to be willing to work for it. And you can do it if you want to. And she kept saying that over and over again. And I don't think, I don't think there's enough parents out there right now saying that to their kids and giving enough hope into them that saying, yeah. Travis, you can do anything you want to do as a 10 year old, mm -hmm. right? Speaking mm -hmm. to the 10 year old Travis, you can do anything you want to do, man. You just got to be willing to work for it. It's like that famous scene in the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Oh yeah. God, that's going to yeah. make me cry. Yeah. It's such a good scene that he's telling his kid. Don't anybody, don't let anybody hold you down. Don't, don't let anybody hold you back. If yeah. you want it, you go get it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that probably for me as a parent, like the biggest, I guess, lesson that I've learned or the the biggest value I strive for is to not just be the parent who tells my kid that, but to also be the parent that shows my kid that it's possible, if that makes sense. You know, like I never wanted to be right. the parent who's like telling my kid, oh, you can do anything you know, if you're willing to work and for then it. they're like, 
But you and, have it. Yeah. And then it's like, but I'm like, you know, a cashier at Best Buy or whatever, right. because I didn't put the effort in to go do the things that I've wanted to do. You know, it's like, I want to be the ultimate shining example to my kids of like, look where I came from, look what I was given. And then look happened after that. Like the only difference between those two things was the desire and the action. You know what I mean? Right. And you can do that too. You just got to be, got to have a desire and then you have to be willing to put in the work to achieve the desire and it can and probably will, you know, happen at least to a certain degree, or it'll teach you that you didn't really want that thing and it'll force you to pivot into a different direction and find something you actually do want. And you're building skills along the way, which is kind of what you did right. with, you know, you're in arena football and then that career ends. But then right out of that, you didn't like skip a beat. You just go directly into entrepreneurship, right? I wanted to be the next Kurt Warner. If anybody knows who Kurt Warner is, I yeah. wanted to be the next Kurt Warner. In fact, when I was on Brad Lee last week, I said that to him and he was like, you know, I get a lot of people that think I look like Kurt Warner. Of oh, course he did. He kind of does look like Kurt Warner, by the way. <laughs> Brad, you do look like Kurt Warner. But I wanted to be that Cinderella story, right? Because I said that earlier that I've always been that that guy who just came out of nowhere and nobody ever maybe thought could do it, right? The underdog. So I wanted to be like Kurt because Kurt was probably one of the most insane, awesome underdog stories of all time of what he did. It didn't happen and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So then I pivoted and I said, okay, how can I take what I've learned, everything that I know in football and start a business? Because I actually made a conscious decision. Most quarterbacks, most football players like me, they go into coaching, hmm. right? Or maybe they go back and they sell insurance, but yeah. I wasn't going to sell insurance. I wanted to, I thought, okay, I have an important decision to make. Do I want to go this direction? It was like a fork in the road. Do I want to go this direction or do I want to go this direction? And it was either I'm going to be a coach. I'm either going to be an NFL head coach or an offensive coordinator, mm -hmm. right? Like Matt LaFleur for the Green Bay Packers, right? <laughs> yep. He came from my place okay. right he was an arena football quarterback he literally i think started around the same time that i was same place yep yep right and that very well could have been me if i wanted to or i could go and be an entrepreneur and i thought to myself i love football but if i go become a football coach then I'm always still going to be working for the man, for somebody. I'm not going to have control yeah. over my destiny, my schedule, and my family. Mm. Right. So it was like never even, it never even dawned on you to be like, I'm going to go get a job. No. Yeah. It was always just, I'm going to, it was, I'm going to create even a something. really great job like that. <laughs> you know, the, even well, like a coaching job or something. It's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's still a job. I'll I say still this. work for somebody else. I think if there was a mistake in what I did, it was thinking that, well, I probably should go get a great job somewhere where I can learn. Yeah. Because when I built the company and then when I sold it, I sold it and I be I had to vest out the equity at a, a bigger company. I learned more at that bigger company than I learned in many of the years you know, starting the company myself, doing the startup. Interesting. There were so many aspects of like being a part of it that I never knew. Sure. Right. Like in turn, like in the context of scale, you're saying, or even like lessons just you would take into the startup. Just general business practices, just general yeah. things you should be doing, you shouldn't be doing. Sure. You know, certainly there's office politics. There's just all those things that like, I didn't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, 
oh, wow, I should probably be doing one-on-one meetings yeah. with my employees. I should probably, we should probably be using a CRM and actually tracking things and giving guys goals. Yeah. And there's all of these types of things that I should have been aware of that at the age of, you know, my mid-30s, I didn't know. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, dude, because I, I, that's something that I've been pondering myself lately is, you know, have we almost glorified entrepreneurship to the degree where people are are missing their potential as an entrepreneur because they weren't ever willing to go eat shit for a little bit and like right. take orders from somebody who they didn't respect or, you know, and, and obviously it's not for everybody. There's a lot of really successful entrepreneurs. You were one of them that figured out how to do it without going and getting a job. You saw inside of a large company after they acquired the company that you built for 15, 16 years, 16 years, 16 years, you like had that unique perspective. But I, you know, I, I personally think that I would have gained a lot by going and working for a company because I never had a job either. I've never, you know, worked a quote unquote nine to five. Well, I take it back. I did for 30 days one time so I could qualify for my first home loan when I was 21 and they wouldn't give me a job. They wouldn't give me a loan because I was doing 100% commission sales and I hadn't, I didn't have enough like years of experience for the mm-hmm. bank to be like, okay, we believe you can afford this property. So I literally had to take a transfer in my company to get a salary so that I could close escrow on the house. And then two days after we closed escrow, I quit and went back to 100% <laughs> commission. But like, that was, that's what my point is like, before yeah. I was always like, you know, I do, I do what I want. I, you know, I'm, I craved the freedom. You don't want to work for the man. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I didn't want to, I didn't, I hated the thought or the notion of somebody whom I had no respect for telling me what to do with my time right. or, you know what I'm saying? And it was, you know, really short-sighted even at that point just to be like, well, maybe in my 20s it's not about, this This is what I tell like young people when they ask me for advice because now I'm out of my 20s, I'm 31, and now I, you know, I get a lot of questions from like younger guys. And that's kind of my thing is I'm like, look, don't look at your, especially your early 20s as the time to be earning. Look at it as the time to be learning. And if that means that you go work for a $24,000 a year internship and you got a bum on your buddy's couch for a little bit, but the person that you're interning for is a massively successful entrepreneur that you want to emulate, who has values and qualities that you want to learn from, then like that will be a much better use of your time than going and working at this other thing that you might make $150,000 a year of doing whatever sales or whatever. It's like, this actually could be more valuable for you by the time you're 35. And yeah, you might have to deal with the fact that some of your buddies that are making 150 grand a year are out driving, you know, whatever, a brand new Corvette or a $100,000 car or getting a Tesla or whatever. And you're still driving this beat up Honda that your parents gave you when you were 15. Right. It's like, yeah, that's going to suck a little bit. Yeah. You're not gonna be able to go pop bottles. Yeah. You're not gonna be, you know what I mean? But also you will be so much further ahead by the time you hit 30. Like when you start your first company, you're going to have so much more knowledge of how to actually make it successful that you have a much higher chance of going from zero to 100 than any of these guys do just because they were making 100, 150 grand a year. Right, and it's this idea too of listen to the people that are in the position that you want to be in. Yes. Right? Too often we sit, and we take feedback or we take criticism from people who are not where you want to be. Don't listen to them. Mm. There's going to be all sorts of people around you, right, that are chirping, they're saying this or saying that. And a lot of people will go, oh, well, I guess maybe I should listen to what they're saying. Screw that, man. Yeah. Are they where you want to be? Right. Right? Yeah. No. The, the, the toughest part about that advice is the fact that factually, 
and statistically, a lot of those people are going to be people are going to be people that you care about and people who care about you. Yep. You know, because a lot of times this is parents, coaches, teachers, like people who you are seemingly close to. And as a kid, you take a lot of your guidance from. It's really difficult when like your mom or dad is being they're, they're sitting down to you and being like, hey, you can't go or this direction is not good or blah, blah, blah. But it's like at the end of the day, if you have some sort of a clear picture of what you want and your parents are not the people that have what you want, then you also have to take their advice with a grain of salt. Uh, because they're doing it from the lens of like, I love you and I'm trying to protect you from hurt and I'm trying to protect you from harm and I want to see you be successful. And, I, and, and it's coming from a really good place. And those are the hardest ones to like kind of shut off because it's like, I know that you're doing this from a good place. I know that you love me and I respect you and I love you too. But also, I don't want what you have. I want what that person has. And their advice is conflicting with the advice that you're giving me. At this point, I kind of have to go this with this advice because that's the path that I want. Right. You know, the love does not make the advice better, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I know it's going to bite me in the ass because my son's going to clip this and show it to me when he's 19. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, no, totally. Okay. So you are coming out of uh, arena football and yep. you want to start a business. And the first business actually goes really well. It's a really unique concept that now is all over well, the place. It, but it talk went us well. But it was one of those, I, I went into, I broke one of the cardinal rules of business. Okay. I went into business with my my brother. So going into business with family, usually you say, don't do it. We did it. We had a lot of fights. It was interesting. But so he was the CTO of the company. So he wrote all the code okay. and then I was the business guy. But so we started, it was a sports video analytics company. So essentially it was this, you said you played basketball in high school. So imagine... You filmed your basketball game and that video then got uploaded to us. And then by the time you woke up the next day, all the relevant situations, right? All the shots, all the set plays, all the inbounds, all of those were tagged using human intelligence. So then your coach could wake up and then pull out all the situations and then be able to teach you more effectively. Because most coaching staffs below the division one level, they don't have enough people on staff. Yeah. They don't know how to edit video. They don't know how to do all those things that like your producer does, mm -hmm. right? For the podcast yeah. that makes this thing work. They don't know how to do that. So it was that service level on top of the software. Mm -hmm. And then it was this whole new era of like Netflix and YouTube were blowing up the internet on how video was being used. So now it was not just downloading videos, but it was actually watching video in a browser, mm. right? And then being able to interact with it. That was completely new. Yeah, this is like time. 2011, 2012. Right. This was completely new. So the, the first part of the company was more file sharing. And then when YouTube and, and Netflix blew up, then it was right around that 2009, 10, 11 year where then we pivoted. Mm. And then we became this complete in-browser editor where then we added on this layer of all this editing that we were doing to it. Yeah. And so we pioneered this concept of using human intelligence to add data to it to make it more valuable, which now everybody sure. is using to some degree. But so that was completely bootstrapped. And I would say it's 16 years of failing over and over again of not knowing how to sell, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're selling software, there's a, a huge element of having emotional intelligence and being able to sell somebody, mm -hmm. right? To meet, to be able to sell an athletic director. And I didn't have any of those skills. So that's something where I wish I would have actually worked at a sales job that I could have yeah. learned 
how to do sales from mm-hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. So I ended up learning it the hard way where I failed at it for years. And then I finally, I'll tell you the book that I read that really made it click. Okay. So Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Oh, it's a great book. Phenomenal book. Yep. Everybody needs to read this book. I think he's here in Vegas too. I really want to meet him someday. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he actually did. I think he does have a, he's a here. spot here now. I had him on the show back in like 2018, you did? 2019. Oh, yeah. So but I need to get him again. If he's in Vegas, I should. I need to reach out to his I, team and do his part two. He reached out. We sent him some hostage tape. Like how ironic. In fact, when I started the company, I said, Chris, you are known as a hostage negotiator. I have to get you as like a brand ambassador yeah. for hostage yeah. tape. Like, you know, because all of my guys behind the scenes that work support, we call them sleep negotiators. Mm. So I'm like, I got to get you, Chris. Yeah. And then we sent him some hostage tape. But anyways, that book and understanding just the concepts of the tactical empathy and mm. mirroring and all of those things he teaches really easily, I went, holy shit. Okay, now I get it. And then I was actually able to take those concepts and then I, I used it in a way that Jordan Belfort talks about his straight line. Straight line I think yeah. it's the straight line system. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I took a lot of these concepts and then I created this system of how I learned how to do it and then yeah. how I taught. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Why sales staff, mm-hmm. how to then do it. And then, you know, we got to a point where we were, you know, 16, 15, 16 years down the road. And I said, all right, you know, we need to like pivot a little bit because technology was changing. Yeah. This concept of live streaming games and then also using artificial intelligent cameras that are filming the games automatically it was becoming more of a thing. So mm-hmm. you didn't have to have a camera guy 
yeah. sitting up in the stands anymore. So I thought, okay, there's an interesting relationship here of the video, the analytics of it, <laughs> using it from a coaching perspective, and then this technology that's becoming more and more prominent in all of these stadiums and courts. Mm-hmm. So I started to reach out to some of the companies out there, and then I was able to negotiate a deal where we got acquired, and then we got sucked into this ecosystem of all these automated cameras, right, that are in thousands of schools across the country. So it was an immediate distribution of Uh, our analytics software into schools all over the country. So it was like the perfect- Marrying the back end of the process with the product. Oh, it was the perfect, because it was like, you had the equipment already installed. Like these schools had it there. So now it was just, sweet, now let's plug it in to the coaching part of it. Yeah. And now you don't have to do anything at all. You don't even have to worry about setting up a guy to film a camera, with a camera to film the game. So now it's autumn. Everything's completely automated. Yeah. Right. Very revolutionary putting these together. That happened. And then now you go through your first exit, which was interesting. And I negotiated that. Yeah. So that was, I could not have done that without Chris's book, by the way, that Mm. learned all the techniques of negotiating that I learned allowed me to negotiate with, and the company that we sold to was a, a company out of Tel Aviv. And when you're negotiating with Israelis, they are really good negotiators. They are hard. Oh, yeah. Because we're not taught how to negotiate no. in America no. at all. So learning Chris. Oh, yeah, dude. Middle Eastern, yeah. like Eastern that's Europeans. Just, that's part of their like, culture. Yeah. Right? right. That's just the way they are. Right. And they know Americans like aren't are soft. Really. They know we're soft. <laughs> yeah. So I went into that negotiation really understanding how to do this and- we came out pretty on top, like with how yeah, they did not have the upper hand in it. So it went really well. Negotiation happened. And then we got through uh, the first sale. So yeah. it was like pretty, you know, most people don't ever get an exit, sell yeah. their company. So it was yeah. pretty cool to have that done. But now the next phase of my life was spending two years at this company that acquired us. That was challenging, yeah. right? Because any entrepreneur that, like starts a company and like you said earlier when you have this mindset of you don't want anybody else to tell you what to do you want to do your thing yep that's the way that i'm wired i want to do my thing i want to create what i want to create i want to have i want to create all the rules i don't Mm -hmm. want to listen to anybody Mm -hmm. but the reality of it was is like we were the experts in this space so you come into this bigger company and you know, they buy you, not for you per se, they buy you for this asset that they, that you created, that they want, that's yep. going to help add more value, right, for their customers and what they're doing. Then they want to pull out all of that knowledge that you have, right? And then they want to then push you aside yeah. because they know <laughs> that founders, they can't control founders, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? They can't Start control Start going stir crazy. So- and they couldn't like it was a difficult transition because they knew that we were experts in this we were global experts in this category what we were doing and they didn't know so it was a difficult transition but it was also difficult for me because again i'm being plugged into this corporate culture that's completely new to me i'd never i'd never worked yeah in a company like that was this big. how how long were you there so i was there for two years because the vesting period for the equity was two years. Sure. So I had to be there for two years. So and you then, got like a kind of like cash deal plus. Yeah, it was a combination of a cash equity deal. Yeah. And so. So you still have some equity there. So I do. We do. In that yep. Company. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Still. So there's still, there's still equity there. And right. 
at, at some point, I'm sure they're going to get acquired yeah. by somebody. And then at that point, there'll be the, you know, the liquidation and yeah. then we'll be able to cash out all exit. of it. Yeah. Right. But so I had to spend those two years vesting that equity mm-hmm. and it was halfway through it, a year into it when I realized, okay, this isn't going the way that I thought. Yeah. I can see the writing on the wall. They just, they want us out. Right. Right. Not because- Also, I want out. Right. Well, it's- <laughs> We're and, on the same page with that. Actually. And it wasn't like, I, I think what was really difficult is any founder that gets acquired, you have these illusions of grandeur of what you're going to be able to do, yeah. right? Of what you're going to be able to create now that you're part of this big company, but it's an illusion, mm. right? So it was after that year of fighting mm. and trying to do it. Yeah. Because you realize too, big companies move really slow. Sure. Yeah. And which is the opposite of how you're not as right. Entrepreneur, yeah. Like when I make company. decisions, I just make decisions and I go, I'm agile. Yep. And that's not how things work. Right. When you're in a bigger company, especially when they're VC funded. Right. So didn't know that VC didn't funded. work. Yeah, that doesn't work very well. Yeah. But that, so it was that year into it that I realized, okay, yeah, this isn't going to work. So then I started thinking about, all right, what am I going to do next? Hmm. Right. What am I going to do next? And so it was at this period where my wife and I, we went through a divorce. Yeah. So we actually went through. Yeah. So what, at what time, like during yeah. the timeline here between like building the company, exiting the company and then starting the new right. company, like talk. To so any entrepreneur and any entrepreneur's wife knows that when you start a business, you build a business, it's hard. Mm. It's really hard. And I worked, I've worked from home for 20 years. Yeah. It's like literally working in my home for 20 years. I've never worked outside of it. So when you work from home and you're always around each other, it's learning that dynamic of always being around each other and all of that. But also I'm there, but I'm not there. Do you recommend it? I do. You just have to, you have to follow a set of principles. Hmm. Like, and one of the things that I tell my employees now that they're, you know, with me, I've got a, I've got a bunch of young guys who are in there. 25 to 30 range, yep. kind of, you know, your age. I tell them, okay, now that you're working from home and you're not going into an office, you have to dress for the part. You get up, you have to have a routine, get up, do, get your workout in, right? Go for a run, do whatever that morning routine is. So you're taking care of yourself first, mm-hmm. you're feeling good. And then dress professionally for when you sit down at your desk. Don't wake up, be in your underwear, be in a shirt, sit on the couch, pull your laptop out, think that you're going to be productive because you're not going to be. Yeah. Right. And then that just gets worse because then you feel like shit. You feel like you're not productive. You wonder what's going on. It it doesn't get your mind Mm -hmm. and your mindset in the right place. Yep. So I would say that is probably one of the biggest things. Like it can be done and and it's good because then you're, you can be around your kids and your family all the time. Right. I mean- I was telling you earlier, my son is 14. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel where he's going to leave and he's going to be off to college soon. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be a sad day. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) So, but, so the business, right? So we, as, as we built the business, when I retired and I built the business, I actually lost myself, Hmm. right? Because when you make a large life transition like that from being something and now you're not you kind of lose your identity i lost my identity of 
I'm not a football player anymore. Who the hell am I? Mm, yeah. Right. And I've always been a very fit guy. Uh, and I let all that go. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not exercising anymore. I'm not in the gym at all anymore. Because, you know, when you're an athlete, you're spending all your time in the gym. You're eating tons of food. You're working out all the time. You're practicing all the time. And you have this tribe of people always around you that you're a part of. You're a part of something that's bigger than you. And then when that's gone, now what? So there was this huge emptiness that I think I had that I didn't know who I was. Yes, I was an entrepreneur. I had this business that I started. But I was basically me and my brother, but we were working remotely. So I was essentially by myself. So I didn't handle it very well. And I think as a partner, as a father, because we had my son, he was a lovely surprise. But a surprise number. He was a lovely yeah. surprise. And so when that happened, I was not prepared to be a dad. Yeah. You know, in fact, I was sitting in the Dallas airport when she called me. I was going off to, I think, a convention for work for my business. Yeah. And she called me and let me know that I'm pregnant. What do you want to do? And like, we weren't prepared for that. We didn't know. Yeah. And we weren't married at the time. I'm laughing because that's how I also found out about my son being born was in Dallas. Really? Yeah. yeah, Not at the airport, but at a hotel (laughs) in Dallas. And my wife called me and basically said the same thing. Or actually, she like, she just looked at me. She FaceTimed me, you know, she like looked at me and I was just like, what, what is, what's, is something going on? You know, she's like, well, I was like, are you pregnant? <laughs> I don't know what it was, dude. It was just you like just knew. the look like the- on her face and I was like, <laughs> said it said enough. Yeah. But yeah, uh, but yeah, then you, your world gets rocked and you got to totally. figure out how to make it happen. And nobody's. And you're in the middle of starting the business at this point. And well, and look, nobody's ever ready to be a dad. Sure. You're nobody ever. Even is. if you are expecting to get pregnant soon you're still not ready to be a dad yeah you're still not ready right because it's when you when he pops out or she pops out for the first time you're just like whoa this is so much i don't know how to handle this because then when you from the day you walked into the hospital from the day that you walked out yeah with your new bundle of joy in your arms it's surreal yeah you know i was just questioning how they let us walk out (laughs) So soon, you know, it's like they know we took this baby, right? Like they know that there's a baby that's no longer there, and like it's just for with us now. Like yeah. they know that because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, do you know what you're doing? Because I don't know I'll, what's I'll, happening. I'll give some advice for men that are going to become some new fathers. Don't look back. Here's what I mean. Okay. So the, the rules might have changed since I had kids. I don't know if they where they let you in the room anymore, but so when we had my son Rex. So, you know, we're all in there and my mom was there too. And he popped out and then I get to cut the cord. I don't even think you can cut the cord anymore. Well, you can. My, I did for both of my kids. Oh, actually, no, I take that back. My daughter actually came out with the cord wrapped around her neck twice. So the doctor ended up cutting that one because they had to immediately. She she wasn't breathing, but it it was going to be me though. So that was pretty recent. That was post COVID. Okay. So that happened. Cut the cord. And then the next thing is, is they take the baby like, come on, dad, let's go over here. Mm-hmm. And they go over, right? And it's like right next to where they're, they start cleaning them off, mm-hmm. right? Put them and under then a heat gonna, lamp. Like, yeah, under that. Yeah. And then you're going to start kind of the bonding process of you and, and the kid. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, behind you, 
they're cleaning mom out. Yeah. Okay. Right. Don't look back. <laughs> so I'm sitting there going, <laughs> the what's going advice. on back here? So I look back and I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> and then I turn back <laughs> around. I want to see. <laughs> so you don't want to see that. So men. Don't look back. That's some really great advice. Yeah. That's information I don't care to be privy to. Yeah. You don't want to see that. You don't. But anyways. Wild experience though. So you surprised you have a son now. Right. So we've got a son and, but you know, meanwhile, I'm continuing to just kind of not know how to be a dad. I don't know how to be a partner to my, my, who would be my wife. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't even really know how to run the business Mm. because again, I hadn't had a job. I hadn't had a mentor that was where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Other than like, yes, I grew up watching my dad, but my dad, I mean, he was a doctor. He sure. ran, a, he a, ran a, a practice, so it was very different. And it's not like I was in the office watching him operate the operations of the business. Right. Like I didn't, I was too young to see that. But so I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to operate a business, a startup. All the mistakes you would make to fail like you know we made them all but surprisingly we kept moving we kept sticking around and we kept getting better and it was a slow first half of the business for the first six some years right yeah but it was through all that too where i'm not present i wasn't present as a partner or even as a dad because i was so focused every young entrepreneur has this problem you're so focused on the business that's all you can think about yeah that you completely forget and and then it just snowballs mm-hmm. right and in the middle of all this too what i didn't realize that most of us men don't realize is that if you're a poor sleeper you're a snorer and you have your mouth open which i had been doing apparently since i was a teenager mm-hmm. i just didn't know it mm-hmm. and so there was a point where because when you're a mouth breather and you're snoring so bad, you're making, you sound like a friggin' chainsaw. You sound like a a freight train. Right. (laughs) So it had driven my wife out of the room. Mm. Right. So the fact that it drove her out of the room into the guest bedroom. Right. So you've got that. And then you've got me not being who I needed to be as, as the man of the house, Mm. as the father, as, the the partner right all of that then it just becomes the snowball right yeah and john gottmas has the gottman institute has this great concept of the the golden ratio i think is what it is right and this ratio is a one to five ratio and so i want you to think about this because you know i tell this story a lot about how like snoring ripped my family apart and it led to divorce right Mm -hmm. and now we're actually back together and people always think Really? Yeah, yeah. Snoring ripped you apart? Like, really? But in many ways, it was a catalyst. Sure. It was a catalyst for many things. And this golden ratio really kind of explains, you know, what's happening. So what the Gottman Institute talks about is, so for every negative interaction that you have with your partner, you need five positive interactions to counteract that one. Wow. So think about this now. From, you know, your perspective, imagine that you're snoring. It's awful. Your partner doesn't get any sleep. Mm-hmm. You wake up and that's one, a big one. Mm-hmm. Then maybe you get into a fight because she's tired 
Mm-hmm. She's pissed off at you. And that's two. And then by the time you get out the door to go to work, you've had five plus interactions, negative interactions. So now you need 25 positive interactions to counteract that. Yeah. And you end up feeling like Indiana Jones running out of the tunnel with this big boulder mm-hmm. chasing you that mm-hmm. eventually just overtakes you and you can't escape it. Yeah. Right. And so that's essentially what happens there is something like my snoring that just pushed her out of the room. Yeah. Right. Caused her to resent me. Right. Along with then all of a sudden starts to snowball into these other things of me then not taking care of myself, taking care of the family, taking care of the kids, helping her, giving her attention. Snowballs. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it led to a uh, separation. And so then, and at this time, the, it was right around when the business I was negotiating, I was about to negotiate the business to sell. Okay. And then the separation happened. Okay. Okay. And I don't think I was the leader that I needed to be of mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. Right. I was not who I needed to be. Uh, I don't think there was the respect there. There wasn't the leadership there. Mm-hmm. All of it. Yeah. I was failing in all of those areas as a, again, a man, a father, and a husband. Right. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand it. The separation happens. I go out of the house because, you know, when you go through it, you're ordered to leave. So I was ordered to leave. And then the acquisition happens. And it's like, oh, woof. Okay. Now we can, let's try to, let's try to turn this stuff around. Sure. Right. And then the divorce was official. Like the divorce happened. So it was when I so was- So the divorce happened like basically while you're working at the other company. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was at that time too where I was staying in the house that I was living in, right? Not my house. Okay. So I'm in this other house and you start to look at yourself because you're like, you're hitting rock bottom at this point. And Which is like the opposite of the place you would think you would be- Right. After you got your company acquired. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now, and granted, it wasn't like this- huge cash windfall. It sure. wasn't like a nine figure exit. Sure. But right? I mean, yeah, but it's still like what you've been pushing for 15 years. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, so, supposed to be a, a happy moment. And now it's right. the opposite of that. So that happens. And then it makes you go, it, it really jolted me into going, what the hell, what the hell's wrong with me? What do I need to do to improve? Yeah. And so I started to go down this rabbit hole of, trying to find different podcasts, different books, different places in the internet. And I actually found Reddit. There's some areas of Reddit that you can start to read and learn some things Yeah, that started to open up some of these interesting ideas of how I needed to be as a man. I'm like, wow, I didn't grow up. I wasn't taught this. I didn't have this example, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have an example that showed me how to be this man that I wanted to be, this father that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And... So when I started to go down that route, then I started to lay out, okay, now I know what to do. Now I know the things that I can do to become, it's three things, right? How to be a better man, how to be a better father, and how to be a better partner or husband, mm-hmm. right? And in, in doing that, one of them was my health because I had let my health get away. Yeah, I mean, I was... I'm normally right now 175 pounds, 
I'm a, you know, sub 10% body fat guy. But at the time I was like 210 pounds, mm. you know, maybe over 15 to 20% body fat. I don't know. I mean, it was for me very overweight. Yeah. Yeah. I was, if you look at pictures of me, I, I was a bit chubby. Yeah. Like I'm not even recognizable compared to now. Yeah. So that made me realize I, I got to work on my health. So I went down this rabbit hole of like, let's start with my sleep then. Because my God, like I'm snoring so awfully. And most men, we don't, we don't think it's anything serious. We don't think that snoring is a problem. We don't think it's something that we're going to go in and talk to a doctor about. We're just, we'll figure it out. Sure. Right. Or if we don't figure it out, whatever. So I started to research like, all right, what do I need to do to solve this snoring problem? And I went to Amazon, like most people do. You type in how to stop snoring and you see all these different gadgets and mouthpieces and things that you might get to solve the issue. And one of the first things that I bought was this mouth guard that you put in, like you mold it, you burn your mouth trying to mold it, you put it in and it's supposed to like, you know, keep your jaw forward and all this stuff. But what it ended up doing was just keeping my mouth open still. Mm. So you'd wake up with drool all over your mouth and your in the pillow yeah, and your gums hurt and it just, it didn't, it, it was awful. It didn't work. So I'm like, okay, this isn't it. This has got to be something else. So then- I went down a rabbit hole of just Googling, Googling after Googling. And sometimes your answer is on like the 10th page of Google and you're like, Eureka, I found it. There yes. it is. And I stumbled across this article by James Nestor. Okay. James Nestor is the writer of this best-selling book, Breath. Okay. If you haven't read it, you've got to read this book. So in this book, in this article, it was like an excerpt from the book. He talks about this experiment where they went to Stanford Medical Center and they plugged their nose for 10 days and they were going to record both anecdotally as well as the doctors at Stanford what was going on with their bodies, what was going to happen. So as they got into the experiment, they got, he got awful snoring, sleep apnea, and dangerous low levels of blood oxygen. And then after the 10 days, they unplugged their nose and then they mouth taped. They just made sure they were nasal breathing mm -hmm. and everything went away within a day. Mm. And I went, holy shit, mouth breathing? Is it that simple? Mm -hmm. It's just simply keeping your mouth shut and breathing through your nose. Is it really that simple? Because I've been a high level athlete my whole life. How have my coaches never taught me yeah, right. that nasal breathing was this crucial, yeah. this important? That like that much more superior. They, they don't they didn't teach us that. Like it's been lost, you know, in the annals of history mm -hmm. for some reason that to teach athletes how to nasal breathe, right? I mean a light bulb went off in my head and I went, holy smokes. Okay. So I went on Amazon. You don't know what to get. You don't know how much to get. I just bought, you know, some 3M Micropore tape, right? Mm. Bought that. And when I got it, everybody that's mouth taped has the same thought. Wait a minute. If I put this on, am I going to die? Yeah. Am I going to Am I going to wake up? Like when I do this, <laughs> yeah. like what if I get a 
stuff he knows and I just drift off and I die. Especially if you smoke weed before you go to bed. You're going to be yeah. paranoid as hell. <laughs> so I went, oh, come on, I'm that's stupid. It's crazy. Like if James Nestor did it, he wrote about it. Like I'm just overthinking it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know how much to, to take off. So I just kind of ripped some off and I did it. And I went to bed. And then when I woke up the next day, I couldn't believe how I felt. I felt like a teenager. I felt like my son's age, my 14-year-old son. Mm-hmm. The amount of energy that I had when I woke up just blew me away. And it was at that moment that I knew that I had a business idea. Mm-hmm. So the businessman in me, the entrepreneur in me said, okay, this is life a life-changing moment that yeah, I just had. Discovery. And it was so simple that there's a business here. And I'll never forget the reason that I believe there was a business from this though was at the time I was listening to My First Million. I was listening to mm. Sam and Sean. Yep. So I'll give a shout out to those guys. So I was listening to their pod and they were they were talking about Moise Ali was the founder of Native Deodorant. Okay. And Moise famously had said that when he was creating Native Deodorant that you can go down the aisles of any store, any Target, and when you come to an aisle where there's just a wall of the same product, there's an opportunity there. Because the opportunity is creating a brand that stands out. If you can create a brand, right, of something, commodity, mm-hmm. then you have an interesting product there. You like can Quip disrupt. Toothbrushes. Yeah, yeah, Quip, totally. Quip, <clears throat> he did it with Native, right? I mean, just think about how many hundreds of like deodorants there are. Right. And then he came in and completely disrupted the whole industry with what he created with that. Yeah. So that's when I knew, okay, I can take a commodity tape and I can create this amazing brand around it and we can do something with this. Yeah. Because most people would think it's just tape. Right. Right. Exactly. How would I buy your special tape when I could just go get some tape? Like, it's just tape, Alex. Like, how is there a business here? Yeah. Right? There's no way that there's a business here. Mm-hmm. It's like the, it's like the, oh, what is the trimmers, the ball trimmers? Oh, Manscaped. Manscaped. Yeah, yes. Totally. Yeah, that's another example right. for that, where it's just like, in fact, their first product I, I felt like was crappy. Yeah. I got it and it was like, this is not a good razor. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt like they got a razor, slapped the brand on it's it okay. and had a really good marketing. Yeah. Then they actually started you know, taking profit and dumping it into R&D right. and building good products. But their marketing but is yeah, phenomenal. Their yeah. marketing branding was so good that right. it gave them this edge on everybody else Yeah, and allowed them to make enough money to go you know, build products that are actually now different from right. ones that you're going to buy at Walmart or whatever. But anyways, so yeah. that was kind of the... So it was at that moment that I knew brand. Like brand was going to be the play here, mm-hmm. right? Now, certainly we needed to have a great product. Of course. You have to have a great product. Yeah. Especially when your business relies on reorders. Well, and if you're an e-commerce company, like yeah. if you don't have VC funding, then you only, you're only relying on cash flow at this point, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you have a runway of $20 million from you and, know, and capital this was, that were raised. And this was recent. So, Correct. yeah. So this, so we launched Hostage Tape in uh, March of last year. Yeah. That's wild. Cause like that, if this was seven, eight years ago, it would be a completely different landscape in yeah. e-com, you know, like just- Media buying's different. The CPAs are way lower back then. Like there's a way more room, and it's very difficult now to start and scale 
a bootstrapped e-commerce brand. It's almost like laughable the difference between now and a decade ago. And yet you have to be good or well, like build a disrupting product or have great, like something has to yeah. be different or you're fucked. Here, here's a great analogy to that. Fa Facebook ads is where we spend most of our money. Mm. Like there, there's been months where I've spent a million dollars a month on Facebook ads, Yeah, right? I don't spend that much anymore because we've gotten much more efficient in how we spend our media buying. Sure. But we're spending mid six figures at least yeah. on Facebook ads. Every month. Right. Every month. It's great with, for credit card points. Dude. <laughs> dude. Well, the bad part is because of how much we spend now, we have a line of credit. So we have invoicing. So I can't leverage my credit cards on Facebook, my Facebook ads anymore. But I use it on Bad like Google, our Google ads and everything. I'm yeah. trying to figure out a way I know, right? that I can still. Amex just got to come out with a card that's exclusively for media buying for businesses or something. They just need to like eventually go, oh, you've got a, a million dollar line of credit on Facebook. Okay, here, we'll give you a card to match. Yes. So that you can exactly. like use it. Right. Right. <laughs> I would love that. Amex? Yes. <laughs> for, the, for all the executives right. <laughs> at Amex watching this podcast right now. Oh, so the landscape of iOS, a lot of people think that it's destroyed the efficiency mm -hmm. of it, that it's not as easy to do Facebook ads anymore. Yeah. But while, yes, that has hurt it, but the reality is more that you're now not playing on a high school court anymore. Mm. You're playing in the pros. Everybody around you that's media buying is just fucking better. Yeah. The whole game of media buying, especially in Facebook ads, Everybody's just better at it now yeah. too, mm -hmm. right? Anybody that's left in the game, right? Has so to you, be better. so you have to be really good at it, right? And you can navigate around the iOS issues sure. that happened. Fortunately, I'm not one of the people that started before it and then had to go through it. Yeah. I started after it happened, so I don't know what it was like sure. pre sure. iOS 14 debacle days, but. I know for me, which in some ways is probably better. You know, yeah, you might have abandoned ship. I feel like there's probably some people who just abandoned ship on right. that way too early because they were so used to insane, you know, CPAs that it just like it screwed like up their you entire. You put a dollar model. in, you're getting out six dollars back. Right. It was like, and you didn't even have to have a good ad, right? You know, but and I actually learned. So when I went into the company and I started it, one of the the things I said to myself was. All the money that we spend is going to be on Facebook ads and inventory. And so I'd use the cash from my exit of my first company to start it. So it's completely bootstrapped, didn't raise any outside funding because that's just the way I've always done it. I've never, even though uh, my sister comes from the world, like she was a partner at Kleiner Perkins for oh, wow. you know, 20 years. So wow. she's like in that space and, you know, my, my brother-in-law's, you know, another partner at another firm. I never raised any funding because I think at the end of the day, it was always like, if you don't need to, don't. Sure. You don't need to raise it, don't. Sure. So I just never did. So I used that cash to, to fund this company and we launched it. Officially, the first orders started March of last year, but we had started six months before that. Like, so Soft launch, technically kinda. we had spent a lot of time leading up to it. And then the first orders started March 4th of last oh, yeah. year. Yeah. But- I knew that Facebook was going to be everything that we did. And so I actually learned how to do it myself. And so this is something that I would say to all entrepreneurs out there is identify the biggest needle movers. What are the things that matter the most? And double down on those as a founder and entrepreneur. Founder, yeah. 
And I knew that I wasn't going to go to an agency and just hire them and like pay them tens of thousands of dollars a month and not understand it. There's just no way we were going to be successful if I didn't fully understand everything about Facebook ads. I spent the first six months actually learning how to do Facebook ads and actually doing the media buying myself. Kind of self-taught, just YouTube Completely and stuff? Completely self-taught. Or? Okay. Yep. In fact, I'll give a shout out to Ben Heath. Ben Heath has a had a phenomenal YouTube channel. Okay. A lot of great stuff for early young media buyers that just kind of want to get a great foundation. Okay. That's where I learned. I started with him. Great. And then just I kept failing and failing. And it took me a while to find what I call my super ad, okay. right? To find the right formula. And then once I found the formula of the super ad, then it really took off, mm. right? So can we talk numbers? Yeah. Okay, so 2022 is you're in business almost basically the, for a full year, but it's really your first full year in business. So from March to, yeah, it was March to December. It was, we're taking orders. Yeah, yep. and you did 800 we did 900K. 900K. Yeah, 900K. Which is year. a success already. Like it, it for is. an e-com brand starting up in 2022, like mostly through ads and media buying. Like yeah. that's already like, hey, W, you know, like notch right. in the W column. But then 2023 rolls around, which we're not even to the end of. And what are you right. guys on pace for this year? 14 million. 14 million. So we went from 900K to 14 million. And- not a lot of people do that. That's pretty <laughs> insane to make that kind of a jump. And again, like, you know, you've heard the story leading up to this. Yeah. And so that's the thing. Like most people on the outside looking in would see the iceberg and go, oh, shit. Well, that was easy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No. Exactly. No, we didn't just jump from that to this right. in a year because it was easy. I attribute this success to the previous 16 years of all the failing that we did yeah. to get to here. Yep. And we're, now- we're, And all the skill stacking you did along the way, like, right. like what we're talking about, right? Even back to sports, learning resilience, persistence, and competition, excellence, things right. like that, and then translating that into the business world, and then learning sales and tactical empathy and negotiation and, and emotional intelligence and all these other things that you learned there. And then going over to the- the company that acquired you and learning more about systems and processes and how to do those things at scale and building good company culture and leadership. And then going from there and then being like, oh, I need to learn media buying. Like those skills that stack over time is like, it's not just a, oh, we wake up and they happen to be lucky and hit the market at the right time. And now they're, they're doing 14 million a year. It's like, sure, luck and timing plays a part in, I think, basically all success. But right. they tend to favor those who work really hard and build really good skill sets over a longer period of time. Right. From what I've found anyway, you know what I mean? Like you have a little bit of the ability to play with luck and timing and get them to like you a little bit more, you know, Right. which they obviously do. So congrats on all the success, <laughs> man. And I assume it's one of those up and to the right graphs at this point. You guys are expecting some serious growth in the next yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, I think the the cool thing about what we've done is so we've got a team of about 25 guys now on my team. And so I've, I'm, as we continue to get bigger now, I'm learning how to delegate, mm -hmm. right? As an entrepreneur, you're used to always having your hands in everything and you're doing everything. So now I'm learning how to step back, delegate. So I've got a lot of guys doing different things in all these different buckets mm -hmm. that are just, it's all starting to come around and all these things are starting to happen. And so it's cool when, 
it literally starts to feel like just everything's going your way. Yeah. You know, and then you've got all these people coming at you. Like we've got some huge influencers, huge people that want to be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I don't want to say any names of some of the guys that we're working with or we hopefully will be working with, but sure. just all these top names of people who they see the brand and they go, I love the brand. I love what you've created and I love you. This is going to be, and when they hear the numbers, they're like, yeah, you right. know, because of especially, yes, what we've done, but then where we're going. Well, it's confirmation of the perception, right? Because not all brands do those types of numbers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially in the VC world and stuff. And it's like, oh, that's a really cool brand. And then you find out they go bankrupt six months well, later. Right. Yeah. My, my sister always gives me shit about that, you know, because she comes from the VC world. She'll be like, yeah, it's cool. But if you spent twenty million to make fourteen million, was it really a success? You yeah. know. But, so fortunately for us, like you didn't do that. We didn't yeah. do that. We're self-funded. And we're an e-com company. Right. That's that. The only reason Growing we survive project. is cash flow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's awesome, dude. I feel like we could keep talking for a really long time. So I'll, I'll cut us off. Uh, maybe we'll do a part two or something like that. I feel like I'm saying that more and more lately. I just feel like I've been joining the long-form conversations here. But dude, you've created an awesome company. Before we go, let's have Eric come over here. I want to, we're going to show, Oh boy. we're going to show how to apply these things. So, yeah. Here, but we wanted Eric specifically because of the overgrown beard, mustache hair. One of, um, one of the things that we always recommend is it works really well with facial hair. Okay. But we always recommend people clean their mouth, clean their noses, like all that stuff. Right. Cause then get all the oils. It, off right. It. Yeah. Cause then it adheres better, but especially with you, because you've got the the hair right what you really want to make sure you're doing is you're getting it to stick on your lip underneath it you know so you kind of have to be very mindful of so you're gonna you pop it and you pull it like this and here's another reason why it's not just tape is you'll notice that it's a flexible fabric tape mm. so it's really comfortable yeah yeah it's really comfortable it feels really good that's why it's different than just tape oh, yeah. right and then it also is strong. So for men like us that have got strong jaws, we've got facial hair, it's gonna actually stick and stay on. So when you put this on, I'll just demonstrate on myself, you're gonna put it on and just again, make sure it adheres to skin, you know, especially for you. You can't just put it flat out on top of the hair. You gotta try to get it, you know, here. And then you're gonna wanna rub it, okay? So rub, rub it, right? Rub, rub the glue there. There you go. There's a lot of pastors who wanted this. There you go. Yeah. And then just rub it. You can just rub it a little bit to like set the glue on your, your skin, but there you go. See, it works. See, it works. Even with the big old Santa Claus beard. Don't let bad sleep hold you hostage. Hey, that's it. Good place to end, dude. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. This this has been honestly a blast. Happy accident that you came over earlier. We got to know each other even a little bit more. And I showed up early. I cried on camera. True. Right. We got a lot of good stuff, man. man. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. Alex, nice, dude. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people go to learn more about this stuff? They can go to hostagetape.com and we're on all the socials that, at hostagetape. And that's like your social as well, right? You don't do the personal I do, side as much? I do have, well, okay. Brad was giving me crap about this. Okay. You, Brad always get, you know, like you got to be working on your personal brand. So yeah. I have a personal brand, Alex Neist, 
I'm starting to try to build my personal Instagram and Twitter. So Perfect. yes, but it's not so, very big. So at Alex Neist, N-E-I-S-T. N-E-I-S-T. At Alex Neist. Go check out some of his stuff. Shoot him a DM. Tell him you heard about him here on the Travis Makes Friends podcast. Remember to, re- uh, remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Catch you guys on the next episode. Peace. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode.